millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network where we don't do the thinking for you. Today we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the Las Vegas massacre and the bigger debate about guns in America that it has you know, brought back up to the surface. This episode in particular is not going to focus too much on the shooting itself, uh, but what we're going to do is use this opportunity of the renewed debate on guns in America to take a look at some of the data more closely and think about what are the goals that Americans share as a whole and what kinds of policies does the data support us enacting in order to protect more Americans. So we we recognize that this is a really serious tragedy. A lot of people are still hurting either, either personally or just uh, out of a, a very realistic sense of empathy. And we, we, we're going to do our best to present some data, you know, it, it, try to find the opportunity to sit down, think and talk about how we can collectively help pe- make people more safe. And we, we posit, we assume that ultimately that is what people want, uh, regardless of the rhetoric that they use to communicate their desires. They, everyone wants everyone to be safer. We are going to start talking a little bit about this massacre specifically because it's a great case study of how we can think about very specific policy in response to uh, a tragedy like this. Of course, the rhetoric spike that we've seen due to the natural emotion uh, that comes out of a tragedy like this, you know, that rhetoric, that rhetoric spike has a, can have a lot of anger, even from both sides, uh, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of exasperation. And it's not something that's representing a debate where we say, okay, let's sit down and, and hammer out this kind of policy. In particular, in this case, there's actually a lot of opportunity to do that. One thing we don't understand about this shooting is that uh, we don't know the motive still. We don't know why the shooter decided that this was something he's going to do. Um, and the details of what led up to the massacre are still emerging and, and probably will be for a very long time. So what we will focus on and what we can know is how to potentially approach this issue with a better sense of problem solving. And again, there's a lot of very reasonable emotions uh, and emotional reactions going on in the country in response to this to this tragedy. So while we don't know the motives, what we can try to do is better define the problem, which is is not always done very effectively because of the 
the, the emotional reactions that, that come after uh, a tragedy like this. So we're going to try to define that problem better and then discuss what different policy solutions could potentially be available for each problem, uh, depending on how we define them. So let's look at this shooting in particular. It was the deadliest you know, sort of civilian-on-civilian civilian mass shooting in the history of the United States. A lot of people have responded to that saying, how was this so deadly and, and what can we do in order to prevent in order to limit how deadly future attacks are, right? So one way that people are looking at this is they're saying, we're going to assume that there are going to be, in the future, people who decide they want to hurt as many people as they can. And what can we do in order to minimize the number of people that they are able to hurt, uh, given their intent to do so? So let's look at some of the facts of this particular case that can help us understand how to approach that question. One of the interesting things is that when they went into, or when they, when the you know the dust and the gunpowder settled, and they went into this guy's uh, hotel room and looked around, they found that he had uh, twenty three weapons in the hotel suite the night of the attack. And there are some photos out there. We've linked to them in the show notes. Many of them appear to be and and have been discussed as either assault weapons, which are semi-automatic, and we'll talk about the definition of that later. Or there might have even been some fully automatic rifles, although nothing has been confirmed yet. So a fully automatic rifle is one where you hold the trigger down and bullets come out quickly. Um, and you can't tell by photos alone. So if you look at these photos and you see that the guns look scary, it's it's not clear whether they are one pull, one shot, which is semi-automatic, or whether they are hold the trigger down and shoot quickly, uh, which is fully automatic. However, it is pretty clear from the video footage that the rate of fire was really too high for all of these to be semi-automatic weapons. Again, semi-automatic is one pull, one shot. So something else was going on. We also know that there were a lot of high-capacity magazines stacked in different quarters of the room, and all that means is each magazine holds more rounds, more bullets. Yeah, typically a high capacity, a common high capacity magazine is about 30 rounds. Uh, you know, what is high capacity? It depends on who you ask. Uh, usually from the perspective of the federal government, it's anything with more than 13 rounds in it. So he, he may have had thousands of rounds in the, um, you know, many thousands of rounds in the hotel room that night. So Xander mentioned that, you know, if you look at the video footage, the rate of fire, much too high for a normal semi-automatic weapon. Um, so what was going on? One thing the police have confirmed is that out of the 23 weapons he had in the hotel room that night, at least a dozen of them had what's called a bump stock. Um, it's a modification to a rifle that can vastly increase the rate of fire, uh, getting it closer to um, getting it closer to what an automatic rifle would do. And we'll, we'll talk about exactly how bump stocks work later. But most people haven't heard of these before the shooting. Uh, now they're back into the forefront of the debate uh, because they were, they were probably used to vastly increase the rate of fire. Um, they're also legal to buy. So this isn't some like kind of wacky underground thing. You can just pick them up. And it is almost certain that it is exclusively the bump stocks that led to the very high rate of fire. Uh, in part because fully automatic weapons are highly regulated, very rare, and very, very hard to get if you're just a normal civilian. Right. Without the bump stock, 
modifications. The rifles, even though they you know might look like what a lot of people consider to be machine guns, that is fully automatic. The rifles that this guy had would, without the bump stock, have fired at a rate just like really any other hunting rifle, and the muzzle velocity would also have been similar. And, and the point being here is that the designation assault weapon isn't necessarily what most people actually think it means. It is not related to how many rounds are fired if you just hold the trigger down. So we're going to come back to this because it's really important in discussing this topic and what policy solutions are available to remedy it. We need to make this distinction between what an assault weapon really is and what people think it is. Uh, an assault weapon is... I personally don't love the, de the name because it's easily confused with an assault rifle uh, and people actually will walk around using both terms interchangeably when they mean actually vastly different things. So when we talk about assault rifles, that's something the military has. Uh, it has an option called select fire, which is fully automatic. You can sort of press a button and it means that if you hold it down, it shoots fully automatic um, very quickly. And uh, often the military doesn't actually use it in fully automatic mode because it's not very accurate. Uh, an assault weapon is not fully automatic and does not have the capability to be fully automatic. It is a one trigger, one bullet kind of gun, and th there's no exception to that. If it's an assault weapon, it's one trigger, one bullet. Uh, here are the things that, according to the 1994 Assault Weapons Ban, defined an assault weapon. Uh, it had to have two or more of the following features. A folding or telescoping stock. So the stock is the part that sticks out the back. So if it can get shorter, uh, it, that's a folding or telescoping stock. A pistol grip, which means that instead of uh, more or less being... There, there are a bunch of different ways to build the grip, which is where you put your hand. If it looks kind of like it would on a pistol, that's a pistol grip. A bayonet mount. So if you want to stick a knife on the end, uh, that's one of the modifications that makes it an assault weapon. A flash suppressor um, or a threaded barrel to accommodate one. So a flash suppressor uh, makes it slightly harder to see where the gun is when it shoots because um, it, it kind of hides the fiery flash that comes out. A grenade launcher mount, which is <laughs> extraordinarily rare as well. Uh, grenades are highly, highly regulated, um, even more so than machine guns. Uh, and, and so those are the five things. So if you have two of those, it's an assault weapon. So again, it has nothing to do with the rate of fire, the muzzle velocity, the size of the round. Generally, the dead, the de at range, the deadliness of an assault weapon is no different from that of any other rifle. So you look at those pictures, there are a lot of assault weapons in there, but none of them were assault rifles. None of them were fully automatic. And he had, a, in total, at least 50 assault weapons, uh, all of which were purchased legally as far as we can tell. They were Most of them were not in the hotel room. Uh, most of them were in caches that he'd put together, uh, many of which he had bought in the last year. So we, you know, one of the interesting things is that while we don't know his motive, we know that he was spending a lot of money on guns for an extended period of time. That was all recent. He hadn't stockpiled a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, over like 30 years, like a militia guy, he had just kind of done it all in the last year and then decided to kill a whole lot of people. So if this guy was buying so many guns in a relatively short period of time, the question, of course, is why didn't anyone see this coming? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, the state of Nevada does not actually require 
um, registration or restrict the number of guns that an individual can own. So you can buy lots and lots of guns and not necessarily set anything off. He was not on the FBI's radar. Uh, as far as we know, his he didn't have a history, a, a criminal history. His background checks were clean. And um, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms didn't get any alert uh, because apparently they only get alerts when two or more handguns are purchased at the same time. And these were all rifles. And this sounds this sounds absurd, uh, but there is a logic to it. We'll talk about some of the data later, but one of the reasons the ATF is so focused on handguns is that they are used in the vast majority of homicides and suicides. Uh, so they are a, from a kind of global perspective, they're a much more, you know, they're just used so much more often that it's what the ATF tends to focus on. So those are the facts. Um, you know, of course, we're going to talk a little bit more about how people are responding uh, to set up some opportunity for contrast. But of course, the way that people are responding is so varied that we're not going to be able to capture it all. So if you have a, you know, our listeners in particular are likely to have a pretty nuanced response that they've thought about. So bravo. Uh, don't take it personally. You know, of course, one of the things that's come back into the light is that because he happened to use assault weapons, uh, there's a renewed call to ban assault weapons. Um, under the hopes that if you were to ban assault weapons, uh, you'd, you'd be able to prevent this level of deadliness from occurring again. Or, you know, more people more people than usual are talking about banning guns outright. Right, just getting rid of all 320-some-odd million guns in the country. That's one of the responses. Yes. Um, you know, everyone's probably seen this in their Facebook feed at one point. It's just like, we can't keep letting this happen. Therefore, it's time to eliminate all guns. That's one reaction. Uh, another reaction that you, you've likely come across is a discussion of a somewhat vague discussion about mental health. How, you know, this guy was must have been crazy if he did something like this. Therefore, he probably had a mental illness, and you know that that relates back to the issue of background checks and what what we need to look for when we do background checks on people who are purchasing firearms. It's not clear that this guy had a diagnosable condition. Um, and even if he did, the, the, the distinction that is important to make here is that most people with mental health problems are not violent. And similarly, most violent people, people who actually commit violent murders, do not actually have a diagnosable mental health condition that makes them a danger to others. There's a, you know, a very small subset of mental health conditions, uh, like maybe certain forms of schizophrenia that um, but but even most people with schizophrenia are not violent to other people, right? And yeah, most to... people with schizophrenia, you're going to see. I mean, they're going to be in an institution, or they're going to be like people on the street talking to themselves in creepy ways. And you know, if you live in a city, you've probably seen them. Um, they are they are weird, but they're not. You know, they're what they're not doing is they're typically not. Um, you know, purchasing well over fifty assault weapons and spending a year planning a murder spree. Um, there are some people with paranoid schizophrenia that have that have hurt others because they've believed that there's a conspiracy to kill them or, or something like that. That has occasionally happened. Right. Uh, a broader point here is that there are lots and lots and lots of, of diagnosable mental health conditions that do not really increase uh, the risk to other people. I mean, something like one in five Americans, I think, have some form of depression. That's a mental health issue. Um, so th this this common assertion that violence and mental health issues yes. are related doesn't actually recognize the near lack of any correlation between the two. But it is much easier from a rhetorical perspective to call someone crazy 
or mentally ill than to actually have to deal with deeper social issues that lead to violent crime. Um, you know, of course, if we look from the other side, you know, so mental health is something that sort of everyone's talking about. And if you're really against gun regulation generally, you might start looking to mental health because it's something you can blame other than the gun itself. Uh, so you can kind of wave your hands and say, hey, look, mental health, it's not the gun's problem. Uh, you know, and a lot of people are, are digging their heels in about gun regulation in, in order to make sure that nobody limits the scope of their gun freedom, in part because... You know, it, it, the people I've talked to, it's, it's, they're responding to people who are saying, let's b- just ban all guns, uh, which, of course, if, you, if you're a strong believer in the importance of the Second Amendment, really sets your alarms off. And so, you know, a lot of these folks are, their response to this is less about preventing the, another massacre, but more about how do we make sure that we don't lose our Second Amendment rights throughout all this. And so it means, of course, that while, there's opportunities for us to figure some stuff out together. You know, pe- people who think they have deeply competing priorities are making it clear that they think they do and, and therefore become enemies rather than allies uh, when this is something that we could work together about. Right. And something that, that we do think here at Reconsider is that if you're going to solve a problem, then you have to have an idea of what the actual problem is and what's what what can be achieved with political capital and the the roadblocks that exist and all that but you know while people are talking about um on one extreme eliminating guns entirely that's not being talked about by congress but congress is talking about a lot of potential uh far more specific regulations so we're going to get into that yeah and what we want to understand is what made the difference in this case or the biggest difference in this case the the sort of 80 20 you know, what little thing made a bigger difference here than you'd normally get with someone who decided they were going to hurt people uh, if they use some, you know, other weapon system, if they used a, a car, an explosive, something like that. And the answer is pretty clearly the bump stock. So let's talk about how bump stock works real quick. So uh, I'm going to just quote from Wikipedia because uh, it's otherwise a little hard to explain. Quote, The bump firing process involves bracing the rifle with the non-trigger hand. So, you know, if you're shooting with the right hand, with the left hand. Releasing the grip on the firing hand, leaving the trigger finger in its normal position in front of the trigger. Pushing the rifle forward in order to apply pressure on the trigger from the finger. And keeping the trigger finger stationary. During the shot, the firearm will recoil, quote, bump back. And the trigger will reset as it normally does. Then the non-trigger hand pulls the firearm away from the body uh, and back to the original position, pressing the trigger against the stationary finger again, thereby firing another round when the trigger is pushed back. So how does this work? If you guys know a shake weight, right? So you've got your hands and you're just shaking this thing back and forth really fast. Um, Imagine your left hand, you know, you're shooting with your right. You keep your, your trigger finger stationary and you use your left hand like a shake weight or something else more obscene. Um, and you rock the gun forward and backward really fast to fire it. It turns out that doing this, I talked to a few people uh, as some research who have used bump stocks. Um, These people tend to be very pro-Second Amendment, obviously. Uh, Well, not obviously, but not surprisingly. And what's interesting is that they say that shooting a gun this way, rather than just by pulling your finger, requires a lot more stamina. Because if you listen to the videos... Every time that you hear a gun, uh, a, a shot, and what you're hearing is like for 11 straight minutes, um, it means that he's cycled the gun with his left hand. Um, again, kind of like a shake weight. And doing that for 11 minutes with one hand uh, is exhausting. 
Uh, and it's also, of course, very inaccurate. Now, the accuracy problem doesn't seem so big because he's sort of shooting fish in a barrel, unfortunately. Um, but the the fact that the explanation for 11 minutes of very fast fire is this bump stock uh, has led to some conspiracy theories that there must be more going on because my understanding from people who have used this is that the stamina required to use this for a long time is pretty high. Uh, and so that's an interesting foible that you're going to run into if you're discussing this with someone who really knows guns and knows bump stocks. Um, it's a common thing running through that it seems a little odd that only the bump stock was responsible, but that's at least how it works. So another aspect of this, in addition to the very high rate of fire, probably allowed by the bump stock, um, was the number of guns. And the, having several guns only actually matters if the gun gets very hot, because if it gets too hot, then it can't really fire, right? Gun, they get hot because there are lots of explosions going on inside of the gun. That's, that's what happens when... Uh, the pin actually hits the bullet and ignites the gunpowder and shoots the bullet out. A lot of hot air. Uh, the bullets are traveling through at a very high speed, and that puts strain on the barrel. Um, you know, in a long, over a very long period of time, it can risk melt, slightly melting or deforming the barrel. Um, so, you only really need lots of guns if you are firing at a very high rate. So the, this bump stock allowed for a kind of fully automatic rate of fire, which is why this guy had several guns stockpiled in his hotel room. Yeah, normally if if he wasn't firing at such a high rate and his guns were not heating up, uh, he could just use one gun and use his many, many clips or magazines of ammunition, these high capacity clips, uh, and swap those out. And that's actually easier than just trying to like you know grab from a pile of guns and, and toss them around. Um, so if we're talking about what kind of problems to solve, the number of guns is important, but it's only important because of the bump stock. It otherwise would not have made much of a difference or, or any difference in lethality. You know, when we're talking about the rate of fire, some people object and they say, hey, look, high rate of fire weapons are wildly inaccurate. Uh, he would have done better if he'd just done single rate of fire or single fire. So uh, one argument I've heard is that he'd have killed more people if he just used a scoped rifle and took a good shot every five to six seconds, which can be done. The counter to that is that sort of looking at the map, uh, you had this very wide sort of target uh, for him to hit of very densely packed people who, if you look at the videos, did not get out of there very quickly. In part because, you know, it's a roped off area. It's designed for people not to be able to get in too easily, right? Because it's a it's an event that you've paid for. And so it took people a long time to filter out, but they also didn't know where the fire was coming from. Their initial instinct was to get down. So you had this very large target that was densely packed for a very, very long time. Uh, now I've, I have fired some automatic weapons in my time. This was all at a licensed range. So you discussed how, you know, it's hard to get your hands on automatic weapons. Uh, licensed ranges are able to do it. Um, you know, they get agreements with the ATF. There's lots of inspections, etc. But I fired them. And I can tell you, they're pretty darn inaccurate. However, um, you know, if you just kind of paint a cone out of where he was shooting, you know, he maybe had 30 degrees. Uh, and that was, it, they're, they're accurate enough for that. And therefore, anyone who's saying, look, the rate of fire didn't make a difference because it's inaccurate, probably the facts of the case say that such a large and densely packed uh, target meant that the rate of fire did make a big difference. And with all of that together, it suggests that, yes, the bump stock 
was the big thing. Had the bump stock not been a thing, rate of fire much, much lower. Um, in this case, he set himself up such that the rate of fire and the inaccuracy from that didn't hurt his lethality. And other issues such as being an assault weapon doesn't make a lethality difference. Uh, and the number of guns does make a lethality difference only because uh, the bump stocks were equipped with the weapons only because they had such a high rate of fire. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So then the next obvious question is in terms of policy solutions, can bump stocks be regulated? Probably. The NRA and the GOP are both talking about uh, regulating bump stock ownership in a number of ways right now, um, generally just to make it harder for people to get a hold of them um, some, versus, for example, maybe going to a licensed range, licensed range like Eric uh, mentioned he did to shoot a fully automatic weapon uh, and just m- making that the only place where you can possibly get a hold of them. So it would be essentially getting rid of them if they were able to successfully restrict them, and then find uh, and eliminate the bump stocks that are out in the wild right now, which, of course, whenever you're trying to ban something, uh, getting them out in the wild and getting rid of them is always the hard part, as we know with many things such as drugs. Yeah, lots of ifs. And whenever you make something illegal, you always create the opportunity for a black market. So the other question is, what else can be done? So we could talk about, look, maybe we can ban or, or highly restrict bump stocks in order to make, again, make sure that in the future, attacks such as this are far less lethal. It's it's very commonly accepted that people don't want, you know, normal Americans to be running around with automatic weapons. It's just a bad idea. Uh, bump stocks simulate automatic weapons. We could potentially restrict them. The GOP seems on board. The NRI seems on board to some extent. Uh, it could be done. So let's assume that gets done. What else could we do to limit the the deadliness or frequency of this kind of attack in the future? Well, there's a wide variety of suggestions and recommendations. One we already mentioned, which is just a complete total gun ban, uh, which is, for starters, politically infeasible. Um, So much so that, you know, spending a lot of time talking about it, you know, might or might not be worthwhile, but it's almost certainly not going to happen politically. And then practically, it's also infeasible, too, because... There's over 300 million guns in the U.S., and even if they became illegal tomorrow, how do you actually confiscate something that's so widely distributed? Slightly more feasible, but still very difficult, is banning anything that has a detachable magazine. 
Um, so if, if a detachable magazine were banned, you could limit the long-term rate of fire because you would have to load each round individually by hand. The gun has to be designed to accept that kind of detachable magazine or clip. Um, there are many other guns that don't have detachable magazines or clips. Most shotguns, lots of hunting rifles, stuff like that, where you actually just have to load each round by hand. And it may be able to hold a few at a time, uh, but you still have to go like, okay, like, you know, it goes in, goes in, goes in by hand, and then and then you lock it. And so this, if you got rid of all those, it would vastly decrease the amount of shots you can get off per minute with a gun uh, and, and would therefore make attacks like this less deadly. However, uh, there's not a whole, right now, there's not a whole lot of um, political or agreement among Americans that they want to get rid of detachable clips or get rid of guns that use detachable clips. Another potential policy could be to ban assault weapons. Um, although, as we discussed, assault weapons, the, the presence of assault weapons are not actually what made this attack particularly deadly. It was the rate of fire and an assault weapon is not categorized by its rate of fire. So it's it's not necessarily a helpful definition to approach the rate of fire issue. Yeah, and the other thing to note about assault weapons is that at least through 2014, which is where we have good FBI data for the moment, uh, they kill about 50 people per year, 5-0, compared to the 30,000 plus people that die of guns every year. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a percentage is astronomically small. Um, and therefore, you know, we need to question whether it's the, the place we want to use our political capital or effort. A lot of people are talking about background checks. A lot of people say we need better background checks, harsher background checks, tougher, you know, whatever. These vary substantially by state. Uh, however, the states that oh, every state does have some form of criminal background check for uh, a gun purchase at a dealer. Um, some of them vary when it's a private sale. So if I were to sell something to Xander, there are some states where I wouldn't have to do a background check. Um, and a lot of people say that, you know, background checks need to be tougher. And it's uh, it's not clear whether a lot of people understand what's involved in a background check. Um, you know, there's a, there's a criminal check. There's also a check for a history of mental instability that tends towards violence. Um, and a lot of paperwork you need to fill out. Uh, could they be could they be changed? Absolutely. Uh, look into how background checks work in your state. Um, make sure you understand them, and you might be able to, you know, you might be able to join or instigate a campaign that would change or rationalize background checks in a way that might be interesting to you. And for what it's worth, Eric, I know you've done some number crunching on this, but if you actually look at the percentage of Americans that support background checks, it's it's quite high. I mean, depending on the question you ask and what type of background checks you're asking about, it's 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 clearly in the majority, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's there is vast support among the American public for having background checks for guns, particularly criminal or sort of dangerously, you know, dangerously violent people not being able to get uh, guns in their hands. A lot of support for this. And on the issue of you know, background checks looking for criminal activity, which obviously makes sense. I have read some fairly convincing arguments that, you know, background checks for mental instability, again, coming back to this issue of does that actually contribute to a person's probability of being more violent because it could potentially discriminate against people who have absolutely no violent tendencies, but, you know, depression that might fit under that mental illness category. 
So that's an entirely different debate that we're not going to you know, get into in too much detail, but it's something worth at least bringing up because a lot of people will just say, oh, you know, these people are crazy, they're mentally unstable, and therefore, you know, that's what we need to look for. There's really not a huge correlation between the two. The other stuff that people talk about are waiting periods. Uh, obviously, in this case, given the facts, waiting periods would not have helped. Waiting periods tend to go up to, say, a week. Uh, they don't tend to be something like five years. Uh, he had been accumulating these weapons for, you know, about a year. Um, and so none of the waiting periods that have sort of been proposed would have helped in this case. Uh, it's also not clear to me. I just don't know the facts. If you have the facts, great. Uh, how many, what what percentage of deaths are committed or what percentage of, yeah, gun deaths are committed with guns that uh, are with would have been within a certain waiting period, say a week, where that person would have somehow been dissuaded by waiting a week. Uh, I'm sure it's more than zero. I don't know how many it is. And the last one that's really interesting that people talk about is licensing and insurance. So you might see people say, look, you need to have a gun license and you need to have gun insurance. The insurance being a liability insurance such that if you if your gun is used to hurt someone, uh, you are liable in the same way as with your car. Uh, and licensing much like a car as well. Interestingly, in Massachusetts, we do have licensing. So I have a license to carry and required safety training. Um, this may not necessarily be a bad idea uh, when you have a right to bear arms rather than, uh, you know, when you have an enshrined right, it gets a little more complicated uh, than with something like driving. But that aside, let's ask whether it would work. And if you are licensing people based on a safety test, that is like, do you know how to handle a gun in order to make sure that it does not go off accidentally? Uh, it, it's not clear to me how this would have helped prevent him or most people who use guns to kill people from killing people. You know, the test I went through in Massachusetts certainly, well, if I didn't know how to use a gun, would have made me better at using a gun, uh, not worse, but I, I'm certainly safer. Ah, right, and then if we look at insurance, you know, insurance is something that's that's interesting where it could increase just the cost, the burden of ownership, right? The cost of owning a gun because uh, you have to get insurance. So it might be an effective way to just limit people's ability to get guns by, you know, surreptitiously introducing a, a financial burden beyond the current financial burden of owning a gun. Uh, however, I'll leave it to you to think about how much this shooter or other mass shooters really care about the economic liability uh, that they might face for mass shootings uh, versus, you know, would it would some would some additional economic liability have deterred him or other mass shooters or say, you know, gang shootouts and et cetera. Uh, that's something for you to think about yourself because it's a hypothetical. Um, but I think that has to be the question that we need to ask if we're going to decide whether liability insurance is going to protect a substantial number of people from being killed by guns. So we've just laid out really several policy options, many of which are being discussed uh, more publicly right now, some of which aren't, and there's lots and lots of variations on each of these. Now, the question that we need to ask is, what's the goal of any policy that we're going to try to implement, right? Almost this entire discussion so far and the discussion that's been going on over the last month has really been about limiting the lethality and frequency of mass shooting events. You know, um, again, the, the rhetoric that, that one hears is this happened again, no longer, we need to stop these mass shootings. They are tragic and by definition, very sensational. But the question is, how much 
death do they cause relative to other types of death? What, what's the actual probability that if you're going to be killed, you're going to be killed in a mass shooting event? Well, mass shooting deaths in the United States account for 0.3% of all homicide victims in the U.S. So if you are murdered, there is a 99.7% chance that it will not be in the form of a mass shooting. Yeah, and people like to point out the the sort of somewhat absurd things that are more likely to kill you than a mass shooting. You know, lightning, sharks, you know, uh, I think tripping down the stairs specifically at your grandmother's house and and other things that are that we don't worry so much about um, because they are we know that they are very unlikely. Um, and, and those are all designed to put that fairly small number into perspective. Now, this doesn't mean that this should be a focus. Um, we're just asking the question. Perhaps your position is mass shootings are so tragic, so awful, so horrific, that that is what we should focus our political capital of, irrespective of the probability that you die from a mass shooting um, being very small. So, you know, there's lots of things we can focus on. Uh, eliminating mass shootings or decreasing their frequency, um, focusing on gun deaths as a general category, and that includes both suicides and homicides. Should we focus on gun homicides only? Or how about all homicides, regardless of the murder weapon? And then as Eric mentioned, you know, there are wrongful deaths, and many, many categories of wrongful deaths have a higher probability of killing you than even all gun homicides, and then there are fatal accidents like automobile accidents, which cause far more people every year than all homicides. Um, you know, premature preventable death. Some of these obviously are violent deaths, some are not, so maybe that's a category distinction that you can make. But the questions, these questions need to be asked. Yeah, and the reason we have to focus is someone might say, well, why only focus on one? Of, co of course we want to decrease all of these. And I suspect, you know, if you asked Americans do you want to reduce the number of X and you, in, you know, insert any of those, you'd get some, you know, 90 plus percent saying, of course, yeah, less. And then there's some small percentage that are strange. And you might want to get rid of all the above. And that's great. However, we do have limited resources at any given time. Um, but it is a fact that the, the time that we or Congress spend talking about or, or focusing on trying to understand and develop the political capital to slay one issue is time not spent discussing another. Um, I'm sure many of you can think of issues that you would like discussed in the news by Congress, etc., that are not being discussed because someone is talking about, you know, some current issue, they're talking about immigration, they're talking about tax reform, they're talking about whatever Trump tweeted recently. Uh, and so given this sort of reality of limited resources, we just need to prioritize and we want to help you think about what is your priority, not tell you what it is, but just help you consider what it would be. And just as a potential counterpoint to that position on unlimited resources, I made that point to a friend of mine recently and he disagreed with me and said, you know, uh, if you can begin building policy momentum, then perhaps passing the first few regulations congeals into greater public support. And that allows initiatives to be passed that couldn't have been passed before. So that's also a position that you can take. Um, my, my personal opinion is I, that happens sometimes, but, but far more frequently to get massive reform pass, uh, passed through the government. You need a lot of political capital. And usually once that's done, it's, you know, people tend to move on to the next issue. 
Right. A few examples may be, you know, after the assault weapons ban of 1994, you know, do you think that there were more gun restrictions passed or, or you know, more changes to gun law that allowed more gun freedom? Uh, perhaps after Obamacare was passed, do you think that uh, the United States continued moving towards greater government involvement in uh, healthcare or b- lashed back towards less government involvement in healthcare? Uh, you know, uh, this is also some stuff we're thinking about. So what are some facts about gun deaths and violent homicides generally, Eric? This is all stuff you can read in Wedged, uh, which, you know, I link all the time. It's my book on political polarization. Um, so some of, some interesting ones that we picked out for this one that I think are relevant. So one is that there are about 30,000 gun deaths per year in the United States. So if you died because a bullet came out of a gun and and hit you, uh, there's 30,000 of those. Um, One third of those are homicides by gun, and almost all of the rest are suicides by gun. The remaining few are accidental gun deaths. Uh, They're a pretty small percentage, but almost two thirds are suicides. Of those homicides, so you have about 10,000 gun homicides, Um, About 80% of all homicides are by gun. The other 20%, about 2,000, are by other weapons. And of those gun homicides, so those 10,000 gun homicides, uh, handguns, which means, you know, the short things you hold in one hand, you can, like, kind of put in your pocket, uh, not rifles of any sort, they account for 90% of all of those deaths. This is where the gun used is known. So there's a substantial portion, like 30%, where we're not sure what gun was used. But of those that we know what was used, handguns are 90% of all of those deaths. Compare that to, so it's, you know, it's known about 6,000, but if we extrapolate that out, it's probably about 9,000. Assault weapons, which we've talked about, there are those cosmetic changes. Uh, compared to 9,000 deaths by handgun, uh, or sorry, homicides by handgun, are used in about 50 homicides per year, these assault weapons, and other semi-automatic rifles, which are not assault weapons, are used in about 323 homicides per year. Here's what the ratios look like uh, with all of those gun deaths. Of the people killed with semi-automatic rifles, so long guns like those used in the Las Vegas shootings, Three, that's about 323 per year, or 380 per year. Three times that number of people are literally just beaten to death. So fists, clubs, chairs, you, know, you name it. Uh, there's three times as many that are just beaten to death than, than killed with a, a rifle. 24 times as many people are beaten to death as killed with an assault weapon. Uh, and so that's, that's some of the interesting facts about gun deaths specifically. And again, just to be clear, assault weapon is a specific subcategory of semi-automatic. So when you said three times, you're talking about all semi-automatics, and 24 times it's just specifically semi-automatic assault weapons. Exactly, yes. So then we can look at some data about uh, what else kills Americans. And here we're going to talk about all different types of deaths, including uh, deaths that are not violent violent homicides. And again, you can make the point that maybe this is less important, but we're going to give you the data anyways, and then you can make that decision. So there are, there's preventable illnesses, 
which you know is everything from developing an infection in a hospital when you're there for a relatively minor visit that should have been prevented. Uh, 150,000 to 300,000 Americans die every year. This is an average number over the last five years from preventable illnesses. There's unintentional poisoning, accidental poisoning. 38,000 Americans on average die from that every year. And the vast, ma- I think, actually, I know it's the majority. I don't remember it's the vast majority. Most of the accidental poisoning categories from drug overdoses. Yes. There are automobile accidents. And about 33,000 people die every year from them. And out of that, about 10,000 are related to drunk uh, drunk driving. There are unintentional falls. About 30,000 people die from unintentional falls each year. And as I understand it, I believe a lot of these are are more in the senior citizen category who can sustain a lot lot more injury from a fall. Yes. There is, um, we already kind of mentioned this, but suicides by gun, which is about 19,000 a year. Um, a good amount larger, almost twice as twice as many people that die in homicides by gun every year. Then there are suicide by other methods, which is another 19,000 people, so nearly 40,000 people every year dying from suicide by any method. Um, there are coal power plant emissions, which account for about 13,000 deaths. I think that one's probably a little bit more difficult to measure, but it's an average from you know a number of studies that have been pulled together. You can't you can't measure the whole population like you can with homicides, right? Right. You can't look at this person and be like, oh, yep, there's a coal power plant inside of him the way that you can with a bullet. Right. Um, murder by gun, we already mentioned about 11,000 deaths per year, and murder by other methods, about 3,000 deaths per year. So all of this aid is to give you an opportunity just to think about what... You know, what is the place that you would start first if you if you wanted to go off and do something rather than just kind of yell at each other on the Internet? And I hope that people take this opportunity to get involved in something and, and to get involved in advocating and, and helping uh, people understand and, and push along something that they think is is really important to them. And hopefully this data also helps you put it in perspective for other people so you can help them understand why it's a priority for you and why they think it why you think it should be a priority for them. So let's assume for now that what we want to do is just reduce the you know the, the amount of violent death that people get. Typically, you know, often homicides. There is a lot of discussion in the United States that, you know, a lot of people compared to a lot of other countries do get killed here by homicide, often by gun. And, uh, you know, we can look to other countries or some other data to understand what is different about those countries that might lead to them having higher or lower homicide rates or violent death rates. Yeah, now one statistic that comes out a lot in this debate, I think, you know, it was highlighted in a long article by uh, Motherboard at one point, was a a fairly strong correlation between the presence of gun ownership in a particular state and gun homicides. And there is a, a relationship here. However, if you look at the correlation between gun ownership and homicides of all sorts in the 50 uh, United States, there isn't a correlation. And we'll put this chart up so you can, you can see uh, the lack of that correlation. Um, in, in other words, while fewer guns mean fewer gun deaths, fewer guns does not mean fewer murders. If we look at the Organization for Economic Collaboration and Development, the OECD, which are our peer countries, generally the rich countries, you don't see a correlation between homicide rate and the percent of households with firearms or the percent of people with firearms. Uh, For example, 
Uh, you know, in Chile, you have a lower gun ownership rate, uh, but one of but a homicide rate about that in the United States. Mexico, you know, somewhat average and a very high homicide rate. Finland and Switzerland, with some of the lowest homicide rates in the OECD, have number two and number three gun ownership rates uh, in the OECD behind the United States. Um, it's sort of all over the place. It's essentially, if you don't get a chance to look at it, it's kind of a wobbly but flat line. And then there's Mexico, which has a lot of people that get killed, and the United States, which has a lot of guns and a lot of people that get killed. Yeah, now, the case of Mexico, you can probably say there's probably a lot of guns there that aren't captioned. The statistics, that's fine. But then you look at Finland and Switzerland, and the percentage of households that own firearms are above 45%, and they have some of the lowest murder rates out of the OECD. Um, maybe you should you could argue that we need to look not just at OECD countries and at other countries, and I think you could probably make the argument that for the sake of statistical comparisons, the U.S. should either be compared to similarly developed countries or not be compared to similarly developed countries. But at least among developed countries, there really isn't a correlation between uh, gun ownership and the homicide rate. And so when we, when, whenever someone brings up something like Mexico or Finland or Switzerland, someone goes like, okay, yeah, 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 they don't, they don't fit a straight line, but there's something, you know, there's, there's something different about Switzerland. They have full conscription. There's something different about Finland. They have conscription. There's something different about Mexico. You know, they have a ton of drug cartels and stuff like that. And the answer to that is exactly, right? There are all these differences between these countries where things, there seem to be factors much more important than simply the gun ownership rate that determine how likely you are to die by homicide. And there's probably a, given that there's not a strong correlation between gun ownership rate and homicide, but there do seem to be these individual case studies that show in particular these outliers, um, it could potentially teach us a lot about what we could do differently. One of the things about the United States is that it is just plain violent. Um, so for example, if you magically erased every gun murder in the United States, our homicide rate would still be higher than that of the OECD average. So what that means is that, again, OECD countries have guns, but if you erased all of our gun deaths, we still kill more people with clubs, knives, fists, cars, you know, other whatever method than the OECD does with all weapons put together um, as, a, as a rate, right? So we're more likely, you're more likely to get killed in the United States with a non-gun than you are to get killed in the OECD with any weapon at all. Um, it, it's just one of the things that shows you the United States is just plain violent. Yeah, and at least for me personally, this statistic, regardless of what your position on, on guns are, forces us to come to terms with something about U.S. culture and U.S. society that's some, somewhat or extremely unsettling, which is that there's just something about our country or our culture, for whatever reason, that makes it far more violent than other developed countries, and it's not due uh, explicitly to guns. Uh, it's due to something else about American society, and I don't know how to determine what that is, but you know, if we're trying to decrease violent deaths, it seems like figuring out what that is is going to play a really big role and not just limiting the number of one type of homicide weapon or another. The other thing people like to ask about um, and, and so far, people have asked some very good questions about it. Is they say, well, if we look at Australia, you know, 
yes, the correlation doesn't hold, but but we have this great case study, whereas in Australia, when we removed a lot of guns from society, the homicide rate went down. A lot of people think that Australia banned guns. It's just not true. Uh, between 1993 and 2006, Australia, the government of Australia purchased about 1 million of the 3.4 million guns in the country. This is a voluntary buyback. So if you didn't want your gun, you could just sell it. It didn't ban them. Um, during this period, uh, as the number of guns in Australia dropped, the homicide rate also dropped. It dropped by about 15%. There are a few things that are interesting about this. One, in the United States, the homicide rate dropped much faster and much more decisively uh, from 1993 to 2006. It dropped by almost half rather than by 15%. And the number of guns per person in the United States went up substantially. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Australia is that after 2006, the homicide rate continued to drop. Now, you might say it's because there's fewer guns, but it is not true that there were fewer guns. It turns out people kept buying guns even after some other people sold guns to the government because you can still buy guns in Australia. And uh, the gun ownership rate in Australia is very nearly that that it was in 1993, uh, just below. And still the gun homicide rate is much lower. So it's a it's a it's not to say that removing guns doesn't work. However, it is a murky case study uh, that has a lot of debate and it's not clear to me exactly, you know, what was the primary driver of the decreased homicide rate in Australia. And if we compare it to the United States, we can see, hey, look, we decreased our homicide rate substantially without getting rid of guns. How can we also possibly do more of that? I will note that I think there's a reconsider moment here, which is um, statistics are hard, and that sounds oh, that yeah. sounds dumb. But if you come across an article in a somewhat mainstream media outlet that's maybe trying to appeal to a large number of people, and they're very clearly drawing a relation, saying, "Well, it's obvious that X causes Y," you should almost certainly be doubtful because if you speak to any statistician, they'll tell you how hard it is to figure out causation. Even showing correlations hard enough as it is, and almost in this entire piece, we've been talking about correlation. And from an analysis yeah. of correlation, sometimes you can draw out causation. But anyone that says X causes Y, who's a journalist, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying you should be skeptical. Yeah, typically, if you look at academic papers, and, and one of the reasons people don't look at academic papers is about, is going to be what I'm telling you. Uh, a good academic paper that gets published almost typically does something like this. We have shown a statistically significant correlation in one or more studies or case studies uh, that A and B are related. Uh, and, and, you know, within a certain p-value likelihood. We make the case in this paper that there is probably a causal link. We're going to explain to you what that causal link is. Further analysis is required in order to substantiate that causal link. We suggest you do the following. That's typically what these things look like. It makes them very boring, and they're not great for, uh, you know, for the news for that They'll reason. They'll usually also spend like an entire section or paragraph after discussing how that causal link could exist, talking about why it could be wrong. Yes. And if a scientific journalist picks this up and publishes in a paper, the title is usually, hey, it turned out that X causes Y. You know, so it's not just a simplification. It's actually very frequently a false representation of those findings. A great example of this is that in the 1960s or 70s, uh, people that there was a strong correlation between like people who eat lots of high cholesterol foods and people who had a lot of cholesterol. And you kind of go like, okay, you eat cholesterol, you get cholesterol. Like that seems legit. And so a bunch of 
newspapers publish like eat cholesterol, get cholesterol, cut your cholesterol intake, you'll be healthier. Turns out how much cholesterol you eat has basically nothing to do with how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. Uh, because you break down the cholesterol in your digestive system, you actually create your own. There's a lot of other stuff, but it turns out the the diet and exercise lifestyle stuff that was related to eating a lot of high cholesterol foods is also related to you getting a lot of... It's, it's probably the thing that causes that high cholesterol. So it's not the eating of the cholesterol. It's that the kind of people who are doing stuff that get high cholesterol tend to also eat a lot of cholesterol. And so for decades, people like, don't eat eggs, don't eat butter, bad for you, yada, yada. Um, and it was just wrong, even though there's a very strong correlation. Just an example. So we've presented a lot of policy options, a lot of data, a lot of statistics to you. And it's not because we're suggesting that you should take one position or another when it comes to the issue of guns and guns control. And in fact, if we've done our job well on the show, hopefully you don't know where we stand on this issue. But the point is, if we have job done our job well, you will be walking away from this probably more perplexed than you were going in because it's an extremely difficult topic not just because you know we all want to do our best in society to prevent violent deaths but because the data that we all um, tend to become acquainted with is actually quite more quite a bit more complex when you dig into the details of it and the first step towards trying to actually solve the problem is understanding what's actually going on. And you can't actually get a sense of what's really going on just by focusing on one particular news story or another. You need to look at, best you can, the entire collection of information surrounding deaths. So we hope that gives you a lot to chew on and discuss. I know something that people love is they go like, ooh, yeah, I got some... You know, I got some new fact from Reconsider, and now I'm taking it to my friends and getting in trouble, uh, which is always a lot of fun. Uh, to, to the not getting in trouble part, one thing that you should uh, keep an eye out for, we're going to let you know about soon, is the Reconsider principles and discussion strategies, which are designed to really help you vastly improve the efficacy and, uh, you know, enjoyment that you get from your political conversations. We've put a lot of time into them, very proud of them. We're actually just getting them formatted right now, so they look fancy for you. Yeah, these these Reconsider principles and discussion strategies is going to be uh, either one document or set of documents. We haven't figured out the format yet. That will be small enough for you to read quickly and pull out some practical strategies that hopefully you can actually apply. But it, it'll be a document, probably a Pete and PDF forum uh, that we'll be publishing on our our website coming shortly. Indeed. Indeed. Other stuff you should yes. Other stuff you should look forward to is uh, or or look out for. It's out now. Uh, if you remember last year's Halloween episode, one minute to Armageddon, we've got another great Halloween special for you. It's not going to be published on Reconsider, certainly not yet, uh, but it's actually part of the a collection called Agoraphobia, uh, which is published every year by the Agora Podcast Network, of which we are part. And what you get to hear is us and all of our buddies in Agora, who we really love, uh, put out our best thematic Halloween episodes. So you can listen to a Chinese, like old Chinese horror stories from history of China. Uh, you can listen to weird Egyptian stuff in the history of Egypt. Um, what other non-history ones are there? God, I'm sure, you know, Raven and Tiny Vampires. Oh my God, I haven't listened to it yet, but I bet she's got the freaking scariest Halloween episode I can imagine. I'm, I'm terrified thinking about it. I think her, her, her non-Halloween episodes are probably <laughs> scarier than anything we can do. So go to Agora Podcast Network, uh, find Agoraphobia, and you get to, at the very least, hear us 
uh, talk about all the different, well, not all, but many new ways that the world has almost ended and could still. So enjoy that. Um, and the the last housekeeping thing is um, in response to some pretty big demand, we've upgraded our cabinet member perk on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash reconsider, you see a bunch of perks. The most expensive one is being part of our cabinet. Um, the cabinet, uh, in the cabinet, we talk about, you know, where do we want to take reconsider in this movement as a whole? Um, so it's kind of very nitty gritty and, and businessy. And a lot of people said like, hey, we really want to just like sit down and, and blab about politics with you guys and want happy, we're happy to pay for that access. So actually upgrading our cabinet member perk to include a once monthly or so, we're still figuring it out, call in which you talk about a group about the pressing issues of the day. Now, if you really enjoyed the show and we hope you took something away from it, we'd really appreciate if you uh, took you know, 30 seconds to go to your podcatcher, whether that's iTunes or Google Play or Overcast or Acast what have you, and leave us a review. Every review we, we get you know, helps move us up in the ranks and get our neutral message out to more folks. If you really enjoyed this podcast and you know, joining the cabinet might be a time commitment that you, that you can't afford right now, we would really appreciate if you nonetheless uh, signed up at patreon.com slash reconsider, gave us a buck a show. We call it the Dan Carlin model. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash reconsider. Really help us out, help us uh, with our marketing initiatives and and getting our message out that way. Yep, And that's Buck a Show, B-U-C-K-A-S-H-O-W, Buck a Show, do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for that. Yep, and if you've got any other thoughts, in particular, if you've, you know, if you're sitting here going like, "Ooh, I have some data that's really interesting for this debate that Eric and Xander didn't bring up," you can let us know at ReconsiderPod, both Facebook and Twitter. We love hearing from you guys. A lot of episodes have come from user suggestions, so bring them on. Uh, we, you know, we're decent about responding quickly, uh, but we will get back to you, and uh, we love a lot of the conversations we've had so far. So, with that, we'd like to remind y'all because I'm in Texas right now. Woo! To <laughs> Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off, y'all. We'll see you catch you next time. Boy, howdy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.